This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Transportation Security Administration is aiming to improve how it adopts new technologies and processes under a forthcoming innovation strategy. The agency ultimately wants to speed up the time it takes to introduce new tech into its security screening systems. For more on that, we're talking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Eric. How are you? Very well. So what is happening with the TSA and its innovation efforts? So TSA is going to publish an innovation doctrine to help guide its uh, new technology projects and really come up with new ideas and and implement them in in a better way than maybe they have in the past. Um, TSA Administrator David Petkoski says the doctrine will be published within the next couple of weeks. He previewed it during an October 4th address at the Identity Week America conference in Washington. We're one of the first federal agencies across the entire ecosystem will publish a doctrine that basically says this is how we approach innovation. This is how we're embedding it in the core business process of the agency. Uh, we have a chief innovation officer in TSA reports direct to me. That person's job is to make sure we create the environment for innovation to thrive and really be able to get innovative ideas from passengers, to get innovative ideas from our officers who are doing the mission every single day, both from a technology and from a process perspective. And again, that's TSA Administrator David Pekoski and that Chief Innovation Officer. He talked about his name is Dan McCoy. He's been with the agency since 2020. So innovation isn't necessarily new at TSA. It's a sort of buzzword, but this doctrine is coming out. So It'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Yeah, why is TSA making a big push towards innovation? And I guess, why weren't they always doing that? (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think TSA has probably been focused on innovation here for at least a few years uh, as they've started to try to kind of streamline the processes that folks are probably well aware aren't the, uh, the speediest when you get to an airport. TSA now is highlighted as part of the Biden administration's uh, customer experience agenda, which is aimed at improving how the public, of course, interfaces with federal services. And the White House has actually designated TSA as a high impact service provider due to the scale and impact of, you know, for more than 400 federalized airports screening more than 2 million passengers daily. So TSA interacts with the public a lot. A couple of things they're doing, they're testing out mobile driver's licenses at airports in Maryland and Arizona, where travelers can download a digital version of their driver's license to their Apple wallets. And the agency is also introducing new identity verification technologies like facial recognition to improve uh, you know, both security, but also speed up the security screening process to get passengers through the queue quicker. So TSA ultimately wants to introduce what officials call a touchless curb-to-gate experience So you really are seeing a lot of focus on innovation and new technology at TSA these days. Gotcha. So what else is TSA doing to help speed up the introduction of these new technologies that they're interested in? Yeah, they're they're driving towards something called an open architecture for its computers and other screening systems. Tech folks will be aware of the open architecture kind of buzzword. Essentially uh, means, you know, using common standards so you can plug in new technologies easier. And in TSA's case, that's plugging in new technologies for its security screening systems. In July, the agency announced that it had reached an agreement with uh, European uh, airport um, organizations to actually implement open architecture screening systems throughout Europe. So there might be some more commonality between what TSA uses here in the States and what European countries use at their airports. 
Bukowski compares it to how users can put new applications on their iPhone or Android phone. That phone, you buy it and it comes with an operating system. Then you can download apps of your choosing that are designed to work with that operating system and others. And that's an open architecture system. What we want to do with our transportation security equipment is specify on purchase what the data standards need to be for that equipment. All right. And that's David Pekoski, head of the TSA. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So what specific standards is TSA adopting for these new systems? Yeah, TSA is coalescing around a standard called the Digital Imaging and Communications in Security, or DICOS for short, that was developed by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. One of its uh, big programs, the Advanced Imaging Technology and Computed Topography Systems, uh, TSA began efforts to kind of standardize that system starting in 2020. So it's still relatively early in the process, but Bukowski says using these common standards should help future-proof the agency, in his words, uh, from a technology perspective, at least. He suggested it will increase competition for the software used in TSA systems, and as we've talked about, it'll speed up the acquisition process as well. Here's Bukowski with more on that. In my ideal world, if we have a new threat that presents itself and I need to be able to detect that threat in our X-ray technology, and we have an open architecture system in place, literally we issue a request for proposals to any vendor, including the original equipment manufacturer, of course, and allow those vendors to come back and give us a solution within 60 or 90 days. This will truncate the timeline significantly uh, based on what it currently is. And once again, that was the head of the TSA, David Pekoski. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday giving us the update, and I'm sure we'll have more to come on this as TSA is only going to get bigger and bigger with its technology needs. <laughs> so we'll mm-hmm. uh, we'll certainly have you back on again to give us any uh, further updates. All right. Thanks, Eric. All righty. Thank you, Justin. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, so he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.